Welcome everyone to Science Society and of course a special welcome to um, Paul Delgado Olguin. Uh, I hope I'm saying the name correctly. Yes, that's perfect. Uh, perfect, thank you. He is a scientist at um, in the Translational Medicine Program at SickKids Research Institute, the principal investigator there. And he's an assistant professor at the Department of Molecular Genetics at the University of Toronto. And um, uh, Dr. Delgado's Ogin's lab uh, combines uh, genetic um, engineering with um, phenotyping and genome-wide and molecular biology approaches to um, study the function of epigenetic regulators of gene expression and especially in the development of cardiovascular um, cell lineages. And um, the lab then applies their knowledge about the control of these developmental processes to then investigate fundamental aspect of cardiovascular disease. And this led to this really interesting uh, research that we will talk about today. And he did his bachelor at the university Universidad Nacional Autónoma de Mexico. Sorry for my Portuguese. <laughs> and his uh, PhD um, um, also at uh, the same university. And later he was a postdoctoral fellow at um, the Hospital for Sick Children and um, at UCSF. And um, yeah, so welcome. Thank you so much. And I'll hand over the microphone to Victoria. Thank you. All right. Thank you very much. So welcome. We are so happy to hear you. Excuse me. <laughs> Sorry. Um, it's been sort of a long day. We're happy to have you here and excited to hear about your work. And so my question is, just to learn a bit more about you, if you can think back in your life to when you felt the initial spark of interest in science and, you know, or um, it could be an event or a book that somebody gave you that, that let you feel like you had a connection to science. Right. That's a, uh, uh, that's a nice question. It, it brings me very, very joyous memories uh so i think i've been very curious very early on i am the classical child who was interested in in bugs and animals here and there uh i was very very interested in you know knowing what what animals were how they function what did they eat etc so i i remember there was a time when um uh, I was following uh, after a rain, lots of snails came out in, in the garden and I was following them around and I spent hours there and, and my, my aunt told me, what, what are you looking at? What, what's with the snails? And I was telling my, my aunt that I was curious to know what they were eating, where did they live? But because they moved very slowly, I spent a lot of time there. So that was the first time that I heard when she said you you should you should do something in science or biology or things like that. At the time, I didn't really know what was that, but that stuck in in my head. So later on, during my my school years, I, I learned what science was, uh, and I that, that's how my path started. So later on, I wanted to become a PhD because. 
basically I grew up with the idea that medical doctors were the professionals who were more dedicated to do science. But as, as I progressed through high school, I realized that there were specialized professions that, that deal with science. And I had a professor who was uh, a biologist and he basically introduced me to the, 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 the basics of what a biologist does and, and what, what potential careers in biology. And that's how basically I, I began my, my, my journey in, into science. And, and I applied to the university to become a biologist. And, and yeah, that, that, that's the story. Thank you for thinking back to there. It's, it, um, you know, it just speaks to how important observation is and, and children have unique powers, unique and strong powers of observation that I think adults uh, lose in a way unless, unless it's fostered by, um, you know, people, by encouragement and, and finding your path as you did in science. I, I watched snails and I watched ants, and I, I loved hearing you say that because, um, you know, those are two things that are that are that are wild, but they're 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 there for us. They're available, and it's something that you know that it, it could just be a snail. But if you're looking at it and you brought all those that curiosity that you were saying, what does it eat and where does it live, then then um, you know more layers of interest and did did your did you say that your aunt encouraged you to pursue science or become more involved in science after that well she just you know like she just mentioned it uh but you know i have this thing that i, I can remember key things that people have said during my 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 growth and that was one of those things that that she said that's that stuck uh, but there, but I had many more influences. My father was a very important influence in, in me continuing in, in science. And as you said, in that observation um, capacity and curiosity, because he likes nature, nature as well. And, and we often took these, these um, journeys walking through the forest and just, you know, collecting animals and looking at lizards and, and chameleons and many other things. So basically, I, I grew up uh, being stimulated in that way with, with a curiosity towards nature. So yeah, I had, I had lots of influence and, I, and it was like re reinforced by several people over and over and over in, in different ways. Yeah, thank you. It's it's really a good lesson. So it sounds like your father uh, reinforced it by, by also by his example. That's correct. His curiosity, right? And then, and then taking him, you with him, and then your your aunt with really validating your curiosity. We never know who you know what what people were influencing, you know, or who just needed a little bit of encouragement and recognition. So that's a beautiful story, Paul. Thank you. Thank and, you. Yeah, really. And and then, can you take us to um, maybe from your that PhD program? Can you take us? through a series of events that bring you to the work that you're about to present to us today? Sure. Yeah, that's also an interesting story for me uh, because I trained, you know, after I finished uh, my bachelor's in biology, uh, I, you know, genetics was something that, that 
was very, very, very powerful to me, uh, just learning about what you can do with genetics and the depth of understanding of life, which is what, what I was most, most fascinated about. Uh, I realized that the best way of understanding life was for me to understand genetics and how the genome is expressed how, how a molecule of DNA becomes basically to life was fascinating to me. And that's why I chose to, to pursue a PhD in biomedical sciences. And it was mostly very molecular oriented. So I was designing uh, DNA constructs to test different ways to activate or repress the genes. I wanted to understand how these regulatory elements known as promoters, which are the, the DNA sequences that tell a gene when to activate or when to become silent. I wanted to know how these promoters dictated the, the behavior of a gene in, in certain contexts. And that's how I began studying a, 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 a gene that is expressed in skeletal muscle and I wanted to understand its promoter elements. So what were the, these modules that, that determine how this gene was expressed? And this was, again, very, very molecular, very biochemical. And, and, and it really, you know, it fascinated me the way, understanding the way you can really delve deeper into, into how a gene is expressed. But because this was all molecular and mostly in, in test tubes and, and all biochemical, uh, that left me with the sense of, okay, I know this is happening because we can measure all these abstract things that you, can know, you cannot see, but you can study the evidence of a, a biochemical reaction, of a chemical reaction. You can see the, the, the effects of a gene turning, turning on or off but I, that really left me with a sense of wonder, can I study this in a more tangible way? Can I see this in, a, in an animal or in a cell? How can I jump to the next level? And that's how I became interested in, in, in mouse development and in, in, in general in, in embryo, embryonic development. And I was really fascinated about the heart. Uh, I was intrigued on how we can you know, you, you hear all these facts about the heart that it pumps these many times in your life and it it's involved in making the, the blood circulating this many times every minute in your body and it never stops working. Uh, it doesn't regenerate too good. So I was really intrigued by how the heart really allows us to, to live and, and how is it possible that an organ with, with such a high demand of work can stay stable for, for as long as we live, basically. So that uh, led me to search for a postdoctoral fellowship in, in here in, in Toronto first, and then I moved to UCSF um, to, to understand the molecular mechanisms that regulate how a heart works. So that, that was what, what I was interested in. I was interested in, in, in looking at the genes that, that drive the processes that form a heart. Um, how do those genes become activated? How, how do they become silent? 
what are the proteins that interact with the, the genome to determine how these genes are activated or repressed. And then understand which processes that happen during development of the heart happen in an, an abnormal way to give rise to congenital heart defects and then to adult heart defects. And then I was interested in what happens during, during pregnancy that can determine how the heart will behave when we are born and then, then when we get to the adult life. So I had all these questions that I wanted to understand at the molecular level. And, and that's how I, I that those, those were the questions that I pursued during my postdoc. And it, I liked it so much. And, and, and I basically, after my postdoc, I had more questions than, than answers. And I said, okay, so this, this is what I want to do. I, I really want to pursue these answers. Uh, for as long as I can, uh, and that's that's what we are doing right now. Thank you very much. I was just navigating back to my microphone. <laughs> I can't wait to hear the rest of it. So at this point, um, I would like to welcome Dr. Shaw. It's wonderful to see you, and Melanie, and Kirko. It's great to have you here. And so, Paul, I will pass you the mic, and you are welcome to um, go into the rest of your talk, and we are here to assist at any point, and that includes um, with the Q&A, bringing friends up for Q&A, following your discussion, and also if and when people put questions for you in the room chat, we'll share those with you as well. So thank you very much, and the mic is yours. Thank you very much. So I wasn't, I, I was telling Catalina, Katarina that I, I, you know, this is all new for me. I really don't know what's the background of, of everyone. So, but I really didn't want to talk about, you know, our work in a very superficial way. I wanted to make an effort to get into the real stuff but trying to make it accessible, you know, and this is very, very difficult for scientists because most of the time we are used to talk to uh, experts in the field or people who are working in science or they, they understand the methods or the approaches. So it, it's a bit easier to talk to, to specialized audiences. But again, I didn't want to to, to, to give a superficial talk. So I, I would appreciate if you guys, if you want to stop me, if anything is, if something is not making perfect sense, if I can explain a little more, please let me know. So uh, the, the title of this talk is Epigenetic Control of Cardiac Metabolism and Heart Failure by Histone Methylation. And what I, 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 you will see that what I refer to as epigenetic is, uh, is a term, it's a very broad term that is in a sense used to refer to processes that alter how a gene is expressed. But these effects are independent of the genome sequence. So meaning that there are many factors that influence how a gene is expressed or repressed. And this is basically mediated by proteins uh, that recognize DNA and dictate how, how a gene is expressed. So I want to talk about a little bit of what dilated cardiomyopathy is. 
uh, to begin with, uh, because dilated cardiomyopathy is a very uh, a very interesting disease, but it, it's a, it's a, it's a nasty disease because basically when you have dilated cardiomyopathy, it means that your heart has severely deteriorated, and most likely you either need a heart transplant or you need a, an assisted device to help your heart pump enough enough blood to to satisfy the nutrient requirements of your body. And the problem with dilated cardiomyopathy is that it cannot be diagnosed until the heart has deteriorated. Over 80% of people, 60% uh, of individuals, sorry, will die within five years of diagnosis. So car dilated cardiomyopathy is the main indicator of heart failure and cardiac transplantation. And unfortunately, it is the most common form of cardiomyopathy. And what happens during dilated cardiomyopathy, as you can see in the first slide, is that basically the walls of the left ventricle, which you can see to the left in the schematic, the, the walls become thin and the chamber becomes enlarged. So it dilates and this is why this is called as dilated cardiomyopathy. And when this happens again, the, the ventricle uh, the left ventricle, which is the, the left chamber of, of the heart, it loses contractile function. And, and again, you basically have like very severe symptoms, like you have trouble breathing, you cannot exercise anymore. And, and basic, basically your heart can give, give up at, at any moment. There are many causes of dilated cardiomyopathy. It can, it can have, it, it can occur secondary to other diseases like diabetes, obesity, uh, chronic high blood pressure, alcohol and cocaine abuse, certain infections, exposure to toxins, etc. But it, it can also occur uh, as a consequence of specific mutations in the genes that encode the proteins that allow the cardiomyocyte, which is a functional unit of the, the cardiac muscle, to contract. But the problem is that we know the cause of uh, dilated cardiomyopathy only for 40% of the people who develop the disease as a consequence of a mutation, of a known mutation. However, for 60% of people, we really don't know where, where it comes from. Uh, you know, and, and the sequencing of the genome and sequencing of patients is allowing us to identify variants in different genes that are associated with the disease. But basically, for most people, we don't know the origin of dilated cardiomyopathy. So, uh, Understanding the causes and, and what drives a deterioration of the heart, we really need to understand the cellular and molecular events that happen before the heart begins deteriorating. And that brings me to the next uh, slide. Uh, it is known that the failing heart, so the heart that is affected by dilated cardiomyopathy, amongst other things, it alters the way it produces energy. So the healthy heart mostly uses fatty acids or fats uh, as a source of energy and less so glucose. But what, what happens in the failing heart is that these uh, sources of energy are reversed 
and the heart uses less fatty acids and uses most, more glucose. And this basically reduces the amount of energy that is available for the heart. And together with this, what, what I wanted to show in these images is if you can see those circles that are uh, in, in that slide, so that, that image is an, ele an electron micrograph of a, a healthy heart and also a failing heart. And you can see in the failing heart that those circles are kind of disarranged and are, they, they are in different sizes. And you can see that the tissue is less organized. You can see those bands very clearly in there in the, in the healthy heart. Those bands identify the sarcomeres, which are the protein complexes that allow contraction. You can see that that's very disorganized in the failing heart. And those little circles that I was referring to are the mitochondria. And mitochondria are the, the organelles within cells that produce ATP, which is a molecule that is converted to energy in the cell. So the mitochondria is, is disarrayed and, and it loses its function. And it is thought that this basically leads to uh, decreased energy production in the heart. However, we don't really know if this metabolic uh, adaptation is, is that. Is, is it an adaptation to, to a, a heart that is adversely remodeling? Or is it something that it, it happens before the heart begins deteriorating that could actually cause uh, deterioration of the heart? And this, this is not known. And, and what I thought is that this Enzymatic complexes, which brings me to the next slide, known as chromatin modifiers, uh, could be mediators of, of, of this metabolic change in, in, the, in the heart. What I'm showing you here is a schematic of different uh, arrangements of DNA uh, in nucleosomes, which are the little balls uh, in, in, in black outline there. Nucleosomes are the, the protein complexes that organize the DNA in the nucleus. And they are very important because these uh, histones that form the nucleosomes, histones are the proteins that form the nucleosomes, they can be chemically modified in a way that it influences how DNA is more compact or less compact in the nucleus. And this is important because DNA that is less compact is more accessible for the proteins that tell genes when to turn on or off. I, what, I, what I wanted to show to, to this slide to the right, you can see that there is this DNA with basically three nucleosomes versus the one to the, sorry, the one to the left has three nucleosomes and the one to the right has two nucleosomes, indicating that one of them is less compact. So basically the one to the right is less compact meaning that it's most more accessible to proteins that dictate when a gene is active. And these chemical modifications that, that are signaled here as lysine 27 or lysine 9 uh, are, are modified chemically in a way that, that their modification status correlates with gene activation or gene repressors, gene repression. For example, methylation of the lysine 27 and methylation of the lysine 9, exemplified to the left, correlate with genes that are not active because they are organized in a more compact chromatin structure. 
versus the gene to the to the right, which is modified by acetylation of lysine 27 and, and lysine 9, it's permissive to gene expression. So these chemical marks on histones are deposited or removed by, by proteins that are known as histone methyltransferases, which are the ones that deposit the mark. And there are histone demethylases, which are the ones that remove the marks from, from histones. And it turns out that these proteins to deposit or to remove histone marks require um, products or intermediates of different metabolic pathways uh, in, in the cell. Meaning that basically these proteins can deposit or remove histone modifications in response to the uh, metabolic status in a cell. And as such, they, they could be very important mediators of metabolic deregulation in heart failure and also in other processes. And I was uh, got very interested, if we can go to the next slide here, in a specific histone modification, uh, which is known as dimethylation of the lysine 36 of, each of histone H3, or H3K36 Me2. This mark is associated with gene activation. I won't go through the details of this, this schematic here, but what I wanted to show, what or to mention, is that basically this mark H3K36 dimethylation is deposited by this protein known as NSD1 as a gene is transcribed into RNA uh, by its interaction with RNA polymerase 2 or RNAP2 in the schematic. So it is deposited in genes that are activated as the, as the RNA polymerase synthesizes RNA from the DNA template. And then this histone mark has to be removed by a protein known as KDM8 or lysine demethylase 8. And removal of this histone mark is required for this gene to become transcribed again. So in a sense KDM8 is important for gene activation. But what we found in this in, in our recently published work is that KDM8 can also work as, as, a, as a gene activator. Uh, and I will show you later on. So KDM8, why, why was I interested in it? So the reason why I became interested in it, it's because in studies in embryos, which brings me to the next slide, uh, somebody found that it is highly expressed in the developing heart. So I am showing you here an image of uh, a mouse embryo at around embryonic day 10.5, which is mid gestation. And you can see the blue, blue signal very enriched in the heart. And to the very left, you can see an embryo that is deficient for KDM8. And you can see compared to the one in the middle, which is a normal healthy embryo, you can see that the mutant to the right is smaller and the arrow points to a kind of like a, a membrane surrounding the heart, which is uh, the, the, the structure in, in, in that kind of sp sphere or globe that you can see there. And what that structure shows is this fluid accumulating around the heart in, in what is known as a pericardium. And that accumulation of fluid there 
is a, is a sign of embryonic heart failure. So this suggested to me that perhaps KDMA could have an important function in the heart that we don't know of. And the next slide shows the, the person who led the, the study. So Abdallah is a former PhD student in, in my lab uh, who performed this, this study. And what Abdallah did is that he inactivated KDMA specifically in the cardiomyocytes, which again are the, the contractile uh, muscle of, of the heart. And what he found in the next slide, I can I show you this at two months of age, the control and the mutant hearts, so the controls are the KDM8FLFL or flux flux, and the mutant it's the KDM8MYH6 creep. Uh, they have these names just because of the, the, the molecules that we use to induce the mutation in cardiomyocytes. So at two months of age, you can see that the controls and the mutants are quite similar. But at six months, you can see that the mutant heart appears very, very enlarged. And we made sections of these hearts, which is the, the lower panel, and you can see the, the, the ventricles of the heart at two months, again, it looks very similar, but the mutant at six months have a very severely enlarged right ventricle or RV and left ventricle or LB. And when we looked at the, the fibrous tissue in, in, in these hearts, you can see again in the, lower, in the lowest panel, you can see in green, the staining for collagen, which is a, a, a is a, is a protein that, that forms, forms part of the extracellular matrix of, of the cardiac tissue. And you can see that the mutant, there is way more collagen than, than in the controls. And this is important because what happens in dilated cardiomyopathy is that the cardiomyocytes can no longer contract and they start dying, dying off through a process known as apoptosis. And they are replaced by, uh, by fibrous tissue, which is tissue formed by, by cells known as fibroblasts. And the problem is that fibroblasts, unlike cardiomyocytes, they cannot contract. And they basically leave a scar in the, in the cardiac tissue, in the muscle of, of, the, of the heart. And, and this is indicative that the heart has lost its, its contractile function. All of these measures that I mentioned are, are quantified to the, to the right, but we, we don't need to go through, through those because it's, the images show very clearly that these mice are dying of dilated cardiomyopathy. In the videos that I show, I, I don't know if you can access them, but basically I'm showing you how the heart looks like. If you look at them, these are uh, videos of echocardiography traces. And what you will see is what I just mentioned to you. At two months, the heart appears to, to beat very similarly to controls. But a sick, uh, the mutant at six months of age, it can barely contract. The left ventricle barely contracts, which is, again, a, a very clear indicative of dilated cardiomyopathy and heart failure. Uh, in the next slide, I'm just showing you how, how we made these measurements through echocardiography. So in those traces, you can see, uh, uh, you can see these kind of waves. Uh, those waves indicate 
uh, one cardiac contraction cycle. Uh, you can see the, the, the valleys of, the, of, of those, those waves indicate when the heart is relaxed and the peak of those waves indicate when the heart contracts. So by looking at this, you can measure how much the left ventricle is contracting and how much it is relaxing. And what you can see right away is that the mutants, which are in the lower panel by six months, they are barely contracting. And all this is quantified in the graphs to the right. But what's most important is that the mutants, and you can see this in the graph to the bottom, it shows you the mutants in red, and these graphs show you the survival probability. And what you can see is that the mutants, all the mutants that we studied in, in this, this work, were dead before 10 months of age, indicating again that they are dying of dilated cardiomyopathy, very similar to what happens in, in humans with heart failure. So we wanted to know what, what are the underlying pathways that are driving these mice to die and, and what happens to initiate the processes of dilated cardiomyopathy. And what we did to, to address this question is that we analyzed all the genes that are expressed in the hearts of mice that are healthy controls or mutant hearts. And we did this in hearts at two months of age, which as I just showed you is a stage at which the hearts uh, are not sick are not sick yet. And this is the, the following slide. In this slide, I am showing you a heat map of the genes that, that are upregulated, which are indicated in yellow and the genes that are downregulated indicated in purple. And what I want to highlight here is that the genes that are downregulated, which are in the lower panel, are enriched or are known to be involved in processes related to metabolism and oxidation reduction, which are um, reactions important in the processing of fatty acids, which as you remember are the main source of energy for the healthy heart. And this suggested that perhaps energy homeostasis or energy balance in this heart was something that was being dysregulated before the heart begins deteriorating towards dilated cardiomyopathy. So we explored this further. I, when I, when I, what I'm showing you to the right are electron micrographs of control and, and mutants to the right. And what we saw is, again, in the arrows are pointing to mitochondria. And what we found in the mutants is that the mitochondria were smaller. And this is usually an, in, an indication that there is a defect in how the mitochondria divide and how they grow. So these, these were, again, suggestive of, of a metabolic defect in these hearts. Uh, the graphs to, to, to the bottom indicated that indeed the mitochondria were more numerous but were smaller, indicating a defect in dynamics of how mitochondria divide and how they are generated. In the next, uh, so it, th then we, we found that many of the genes that were downregulated are known genes that encode for proteins that drive function in the mitochondria. So this was very striking because what this study was telling us is that 
very strikingly what was being deregulated before any sign of cardiac dysfunction was related to energy production. So because KDM8 is a histone demethylase, uh, which basically removes the demethylated form of the histone of the lysine 36 of histone H3, we wanted to know if by inactivating KDM8, we were somehow altering the distribution of this histone mark in the genome of the mutant hearts. And this is what I'm showing you in the next slide, which shows these two heat maps in, in gray and red. And what the red is showing you is the enrichment of the histone mark H3K36 dimethylation in the hearts, in, in the cardiomyocytes of controls to the left and mutants to the right. And what these uh, heat maps show, it's basically you can see that there are like many, many dots in, in each one. Each, uh, each um, this is basically an overlap of all the genes. And in red is indicating the enrichment of H3K36 dimethylation. And what we can see in these heat maps is that the mutants have higher levels of the mark, indicating that indeed inactivation of KDM8 leads to an enriched distribution of this mark in, in many genes. And in the graph to the right, what I'm trying to show is basically where in the genes, this enrichment if the histone methylation mark is happening. So you can see this uh, sign here, TSS means transcription initiation site. And what that means is that it's signaling to the, to the point in the gene where it begins to be expressed. So anything to the right of the transcription start site is the body of the gene, so basically the, the sequence that it's encoding the protein. And to the left of the transcription start site, you have the elements in the gene that are telling this gene to become active or repressed. And, was you, and what, what I hope you can see in this graph, in the mutants indicated in red, the highest enrichment of the histone mark is happening to the left of the transcription start site, meaning that it's enriched in the promoter or the regulatory elements that tell the genes where, where to, uh, when and, and where to activate or repress. The relevance of this finding is that it suggests that this histone mark and its removal by, by KDM8 could be very important in dictating gene expression. Um, what was more striking even, uh, 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 that this is what I'm showing you in the graph to the right, if you look at the, the, the purple uh, line, the highest enrichment of the histone mark was in the genes that were downregulated, so the genes that are expressed at a lower level, suggesting that removal of the histone mark is important to maintain expression of these genes. And what was even more interesting is that, that these genes that were downregulated and had the highest enrichment of this histone mark were driving metabolic dysfunction. So what's important about this is that these results indicate 
that KDM8 and the histone methyl, the, the histone mark, have a preferential function in maintaining the expression of genes that maintain metabolic homeostasis in the heart. And by disrupting this epigenetic mark, you can initiate the processes that lead to deterioration of the heart and leading to heart failure. So then we wanted to know what are the processes, what are the, the specific metabolic pathways that, that are being dysregulated. And to do this, we performed an analysis known as metabolomics, in which basically we took healthy and, and mutant hearts, and we uh, looked at all the, the products of metabolism that are present in, in the tissue of those hearts. And what you can see in the schematic, uh, in this hairball in the next slide to the right, at six months, what we saw is this group of metabolites uh, shown in, in blue circles, which were, um, which were at lower levels, as indicated by their blue color. Many of these, uh, many of these metabolites have to do with these uh, chemicals known as NAD, NADH. And these are very important metabolites because these NAD and NADH are, um, are, are metabolites and, and, and chemical elements that basically drive um, energy production in the mitochondria. So basically these were revealing the specific metabolites that, that, that are downregulated, are less enriched or are deficient in these hearts. And this is just quantified. We, we looked at different metabolites, but this is very important because NAD and AD, NADH, again, are very important mediators of, of, of ATP generation in the mitochondria. So then we thought, uh, what would happen if we provide NAD in, into these mice? So our metabolomics analysis and our gene expression analysis indicated that production of NAD and, and metabolic function will, were severely deficient in these, in these hearts. And this is the next slide. So basically what we did is that we gave these mice NAD by injecting them every day uh, for two months. So what I'm showing you in the first two, two images, you see a heart, uh, uh, first uh, a normal heart, and then a normal heart with NAD which didn't make much of a, a change. Then you can see the KDM8 mutant, which you can see is, is enlarged. But then when we gave NAD to these mutant hearts, they were no longer enlarged. And this is perhaps more evident in the graphs to the right. You can see basically that the mutants, uh, which are in the red line, they have a progressive change from for two from from two to four months. They change their cardiac function. For example, you can see a very clear decrease in ejection fraction and fractional shortening. And these are measurements of how much the left ventricle is contracting. You can see that the, in the mutants there is a progressive decline in both these these measurements, but in the controls or in the mutants that were given NAD, this deterioration doesn't happen. And you can see that also in measurements of diastolic function, which is the process of 
cardiac relaxation, you can see that the mutants have a very clear trend towards deterioration of diastolic function. But the mutants that were treated with NAD do not progress to diastolic dysfunction either. So effectively, by activating mitochondrial function in these mutants, we prevented them to develop heart failure. So we wanted to go a step further. So we wanted to know what are the drivers or what are the key regulators that are responsible for repressing those genes that promote mitochondrial function. And this is the next slide. I am showing you here a volcano plot, which indicates uh, a global gene expression pattern. And we found this transcriptional repressor, TBX15. TBX15, again, as I just said, it's a transcriptional repressor, meaning that it's a protein that, that when bound to its target proteins, it tells the gene to become silent. And we found that TBX15, as shown in the immunofluorescent images to the, to the, uh, in the middle part of the slide, you can see the arrows pointing to nuclei of cardiomyocytes that are positive for TBX15, which is not present in the cardiomyocytes of controlled mice to the, to the left. And what we found by several analyses uh, as, as exemplified in the graph to the, to the right, is that when we artificially put TBX15 in presence of genes that regulate mitochondrial function, these genes are silent. So as you can see here, you can see that higher amounts of TBX15 caused a more uh, robust silencing of, of these genes, indicating that TBX15 could be an important regulator or an important driver or of the suppression of metabolism function in, in, in mutant hearts. We did many other, uh, other analyses as shown in the graph to the, to the bottom of the slide. Uh, not, it's not necessary to go through all the details, but basically when we put cardiomyocytes in the presence of TBX15, they actually reduced their, their, their production of ATP, indicating again that TBX15 is an important mediator of this pathway. Finally, we wanted to know how is this relevant to human heart failure? Can we extrapolate these findings to understand if maybe we can target the NAD pathway to prevent deterioration of heart failure in humans. And this brings me to the next slide. We analyzed a cohort of 150 hearts, uh, human hearts that are affected by dilated cardiomyopathy versus 100 113 healthy controls. And we analyzed the global gene expression pattern. Surprisingly, we found that, in, as you can see in the, in, the, in the networks to the left, most of the genes that were uh, dysregulated or abnormally expressed in, in these hearts affected by dilated cardiomyopathy, most of them were related to functions uh, important for mitochondrial function and for uh, ATP generation or energy, energy production. In the graph to the in the middle of the slide, you can see that 
the hearts that were affected by dilated cardiomyopathy actually expressed lower levels of KDM8, which was very, very, very interesting. So then we looked at uh, what's different between the, the hearts that are healthy and the hearts that are affected by dilated cardiomyopathy. And this is shown in the heat maps in the slide. And basically you can see in gray that all the samples from control healthy individuals are grouped together, indicating that they share a similar gene expression uh, signature. And the hearts that, are, that were affected by dilated cardiomyopathy, they were separated in two different clusters. One of them we called mitomild, and the other one we called mitosevere. And what was different between these two is that the mitosevere had the strongest down-regulation of metabolic genes. So there was a, 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 subgroup, a, sub, a subgroup within the hearts affected by dilated cardiomyopathy. Some of them had even stronger suppression of uh, genes related to metabolism. And in the graph to the right, I'm showing you that this subgroup of genes with the strongest suppression of metabolic genes actually expressed higher levels of TBX15 which again suggests that actually this pathway of dysregulating KDM8 and TBX15 is also important in human heart failure. So putting it, everything together, we, we proposed the, the, the model in, in the last slide. So basically, we found that KDM8 regulates uh, TBX15 and when we remove KDM8, we don't have deposition of the histone mark anymore. We have abnormal expression of TBX15, which then goes on and suppresses a network of genes that maintain metabolism. And by suppressing this network of genes, this initiates deterioration of the heart towards dilated cardiomyopathy and heart failure. And when we uh, prevent this, we can prevent this to happen by providing NAD, basically uh, um, suppressing or preventing the, the dysregulation of uh, mitochondrial gene network and preventing the initiation of deterioration of the heart. And finally, we've we shown that this pathway is relevant for human heart failure as well. So with all these, uh, we, I wanted to share with you what we think is, is important next. So now that we have identified the pathways that are dysregulated before deterioration of the heart initiates, can we modulate the expression of TBX15 to prevent suppression of cardiac metabolism? This is an experiment that we are doing right now. So we have created a new mouse model in which TBX15 in KDM8 mutants, it cannot longer be activated. So basically, we are generating the same KDM8 mutant, but now it cannot activate TBX15. And this will allow us to test if we prevent activation of TBX15, can we prevent mitochondrial deterioration and heart failure? So similarly, uh, we have the question of, can we prevent the position of H3K36 methylation 
on key promoters that maintain metabolism in, in the heart. And with this, again, we are exploring this by different methods um, uh, of genetic engineering. And the third avenue of research that we are developing right now is can we, based on the fact that modulating energy production in the heart seems to be very important to prevent deterioration of the heart, the question is, can we think of a specific diet to boost cardiac metabolism in the context of heart failure to slow, to slow down cardiac deterioration? And, and this is interesting because NAD is being tested right now as a way to uh, prevent cardiac deterioration in, in patients with dilated cardiomyopathy, but patients who are at, at end-stage dilated cardiomyopathy. So basically they are at a stage where their hearts is very severely affected. So the question that we have is can we initiate this earlier to even prevent the initiation of deterioration in the heart. And that's our study in a nutshell. Uh, I am very fortunate of working with a very talented group of people, which uh, I thank in, in my last slide. Uh, and also I have to thank uh, lots of uh, funding agencies that made this uh, work possible. And that's the end of my presentation. I would be very happy to take your questions. Thank you very much for your kind attention. Yeah, thank you so much for sharing this really amazing work with us. And it's a lot of work <laughs> and uh, it's brilliant work. So uh, yeah, it's really, uh, it's really wonderful um, to follow along the story basically that leads to this uh, really important discovery for a lot of people. And um, I would have a question. Does, is this pathway basically that leads to a lower, you know, mitochondrial performance, mm -hmm. is this also interrupted in other cell types or is it really just focused on the heart? Because then it would be maybe more straightforward to develop like an early diagnosis a tool maybe if you could just then take i don't know a skin sample or something like that yeah no that's a very important question so i mean obviously that the study that we performed was focused on cardiomyocytes the reasoning is that because cardiomyocytes uh, because of their function as contractile cells they use a lot of energy so they are especially sensitive to decreased in, in energy. Um, or in a de they are very sensitive to a decrease in, in energy availability. But you're right. I mean, it is very likely that, that many other cells are, are affected. Actually, heart failure, it's considered a multi-organ disease, even if the primary defect is in cardiomyocytes or in the heart. It affects the function of many, many other organs. So it is very likely that we can detect this early on. And actually, this is something that we begun studying already. We have studied uh, the, the composition of uh, protein markers in the serum of these mice. And we have identified a, a, a group of preliminary uh, potential biomarkers of the early, early, early events of cardiac deterioration. 
So right now we are in the process of, of validating these results to see so far in mice, it's very consistent. We can identify at least one of the biomarkers very consistently in mice at two months of age, in mutants at two months of age, so basically before they begin deterioration of the heart. And, and that's, that's what we are studying so far. We are intrigued by knowing whether these proteins that are abnormally present in the blood of these mice are these just biomarkers or are, are these proteins somehow involved in, in, in the disease as a multi-organ uh, multi disease? But you are absolutely right. This is something that we are looking into right now. Yeah, that is really interesting. Um, and yeah, I'll be curious to learn, learn the results, of course. Um, and another thing that um, I wanted to ask was, well, it's kind of a little bit related to also other types of cells or do you, you're looking into if maybe specific kind of insults uh, during maybe early, early development lead to, to this type of, you know, mitochondria um, not performing well? Or, you know, will it be like a very variable mixed type of, you know, um, kind of mosaic of, <laughs> of factors that kind of lead to this? Do, do you think there's like a specific event? Because sometimes when it's epigenetic factors, we, there are studies, you know, that show if you, exp or if the mother is exposed to um, starvation at this specific stage in pregnancy, you know, this type of epigenetic effects then turn into this type of disease and, you know, in the, in the offspring. Do you think those 60% are, kind of coming from this type of relatively specific insult or do you think it's like could be anything exposed to pollution over time or i don't know i know it's probably too complete or not i specific. you know i i appreciate the question a lot because i think along those lines a lot so as you as you pointed out so Actually, because these epigenetic modifiers depend or, or respond to the metabolic status of the cell, they can modify gene expression in response to nutritional status, basically. And this is very important. We have done studies in the past uh, because we are focused on epigenetic mechanisms. We are also interested on, on identifying the molecular processes that basically program susceptibility to heart disease early on in development. And specifically, we performed a study uh, which is published in, in Molecular Metabolism in 2000, um, 2018, yes, 2018 or 2019. And what we did is uh, we fed uh, females that were pregnant. At, uh, during, during pregnancy, we fed them with a high-fat diet and we studied cardiac function in the offspring of, of these, these mice. And what we found is that actually the offspring of, of these, these females that were fed a high-fat diet, even if the offspring was fed a, a normal diet, 
they had subtle cardiac function defects when they became adults. So these subtle cardiac defects gave us the idea that maybe exposure to an adverse in utero environment does not necessarily cause a disease, but it can actually modify a disease trajectory. And to test this hypothesis, we challenged these offspring of, of females that were obese during pregnancy. And what we found is that the offspring of these mice responded more adversely to this challenge. So in other words, they, they, they had an exacerbated response to stress and they become sick very, very, very easily. So you are absolutely right. So there are many, many factors that, that can influence disease trajectory that we are not aware of. And certainly nutritional status is one of them. Uh, and, and yeah, so we are, we are looking into that. Uh, especially, you know, as, as I mentioned in my last slide, we are, we are thinking a lot about this in, can we modify diet to, to, to modify disease trajectory, basically. And I think this is very important, specifically in the context of heart failure, because uh, it, it is sort of um, known that if, if you have a heart condition, if you are progressing towards heart failure, some of the, the most important modifications that, that, that are suggested is to, to eat less fat or less energetic foods basically but what we found is that at later stages of heart failure maybe having a higher fat content would be beneficial to the heart so there are many of the there are lots of, of uh, specifics in related to diet that that we don't understand and timing it it's very important so i i appreciate your question because this is a very complex um issue and and i think that our models now allow us to test these, these specific conditions that can, can modify cardiac disease trajectory yeah thank you for that answer um and yeah it's a really interesting field and uh thanks to modern computing power i guess we can over time get those very complex questions answered. So thank you for doing that work. And I wanted to pass over the microphone to Dr. Shah. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much, Paul, for sharing your wonderful presentation with us. And uh, I'm referring to the question that you just put in the last slide for the future uh, research. And I was just wondering, asking you about the pediatric, because we know that this condition is known in a pediatric and we have a juvenile form form of that and i was wondering did you could you just uh, have any kind of result about the expression of the for example total box 15 in a juvenile or pediatric in the earliest age or not that's another very important question and i think you you know everything you you guys are reading my mind so this is it, Actually, just this morning, uh, I am writing a grant about that, a grant proposal about that, because pediatric dilated cardiomyopathy is more aggressive in, in it's more aggressive than adult dilated cardiomyopathy, 
even you know people uh, an adult or or a child with the same mutation as an adult dilated cardiomyopathy will progress faster in in children and and there are many different things uh, even even the heart in children remodels different there are a couple of studies indicating that the, the, the heart of children with dilated cardiomyopathy develop less fibrosis, that the cardiomyocytes uh, do not change their shape as, uh, as in adults. Uh, and it, it has went to the, to the, um, to, to the extreme of, of someone proposing that pediatric dilated cardiomyopathy is actually a different entity than, than adult dilated cardiomyopathy. And we were very, very lucky because we, by, by studying different chromatin modifiers, different epigenetic regulators, we created a model of pediatric dilated cardiomyopathy. And what I can tell you right now, we, we, are, we are just looking into this, is very striking. The similarity is very striking. In this model of pediatric heart failure, basically the, the mice begin showing signs of dilated cardiomyopathy even two days after birth. So they, they have a very, very obvious dilated, uh, pediatric dilated cardiomyopathy. And what we see in terms of gene expression is very, very similar to the KDM8 mutant. So they begin, they begin with um, these regulating genes re related to mitochondrial function. What's interesting is that the specific genes are different. So even though metabolic dysfunction is happening in both the adult and the, and the pediatric model, the subset of genes is different. And what I think right now is that this is what's driving the difference in, in, in disease progression in pediatric versus adult. So the, the work that we are proposing to do right now, it's basically figure out what, what's different in, in the pediatric hearts. So yeah, the, reason that, the reason that I just brought it up, that was about the uh, underlying cause, because when we are thinking about the pediatric instead of congenital uh, kind of heritage kind of issue, it can be related with too many other factors like autoimmune or hypothyroid or other things also one more question that i had also you mentioned about the nutrition or can we just design a food that the, it can compensate the question is how they can absorb it the question is not how we can modify the nutrition for example we know for this situation uh, we have for example selenium or uh, i don't know thiamine as a main controller for part of the NAD and all of those hard muscles. So I was just, if I may say, that was just my opinion. I don't think so that just nutrition, it can be by itself uh, helping that much because the level of absorption is matter all the time. And uh, another part I wanted to ask you that was about the other uh, inflammation kind of cytokines or chemokines that it, they can be involved and overlap for early detection. Do you have any further information that you can share with us? Sure. So, yeah, no, I, first of all, I agree with you that diet alone, it, it's more complicated than that. 
Um, however, based on, on the experiments that we did, at least in the mice, it was quite striking that we were able to prevent deterioration. So even though I agree with you that it's not the solution, the way that I think about it is maybe a diet intervention intervention could, could help slowing down the process while you know other other interventions help as well so uh, I, I totally agree with you and for your second question about inflammation yes so this is this is a very important question so actually not just inflammation, but, you know, inflammation and extracellular matrix remodeling go hand, hand in hand. So what we found is that providing NAD actually didn't change the metabolic gene expression pathway. But what it changed was the extracellular matrix remodeling. So actually what we think is happening is that NAD is actually preventing the pro-inflammatory pathways secondary to the metabolic dysfunction. And, and so far, I, I cannot tell you more about the, the link of how this is happening because we haven't done any experiment to look at that. But that, that's, my, that's my, general, my general thought so far. Thank you so much for your answer. Thank you for your great questions. Yeah, thank you. And um, Kiku, I, I didn't want to ignore Melanie. Melanie, did you have a comment or question just in case? Okay. Uh, Kiku, did you want to comment or ask a question? Sorry about that. I'm good for now. I'm like in the middle of cooking and my brain's kind of scrambled right now. Oh, Melanie, uh, to unmute is all the way on the bottom right is the micro a little microphone symbol. If you're on the phone and if you click on that, you should be able to unmute. And oh, thank you, Kiko. Uh, sorry. <laughs> Oh, and Victoria, in the meantime, while Melanie, um, um, I, I will check. Um, Victoria um, asked in the chat, apologies if I missed this in the explanation, but how early in the process has your team been able to identify the indicators of heart failure? Yeah, that's a good question. So the earliest we have looked so far for the model of adult, so the KDM8 mutant is two months of age, which is basically before uh, before there is initiation of dilated cardiomyopathy, but that's the earliest stage. So one of one of the things that we are planning on on doing is now that we have identified this potential biomarker, we want to go back. Uh, in, in to these mice to see what's the earliest time point in, at which we can identify the presence of these biomarkers. So this this is something that we are working on. Yeah, thank you um, for that. And um, just in case, Mel. Oh, there you go. You're unmuted. Go ahead. Thank you. Hi. Um, so once you figure out uh, the proteomics behind the, the biomarkers, 
regulating this uh, model, do you think, what do you think would be the next step for the the research going forward, developing the the pathways? Sure. Yeah, that that's a, that's an important question. So, once we can um, validate the presence of this biomarker, what we need to do next is basically to analyze a large cohort of of um, samples from from actual patients. So we need to to determine first of all if this biomarker is is also present in in humans affected by dilated cardiomyopathy. And to do that, we have to work with biobanks uh, available here in, at, at, in our institute. Basically, we need to establish collaboration with, with clinician scientists also for obtaining this, the, the, the serum of, or plasma of patients, um, both pediatric and adults affected by dilated cardiomyopathy, and determine whether we, the, this biomarker is present or not. And if it is something that we will need to determine if is if the marker is specific for dilated cardiomyopathy or can it identify other forms of cardiomyopathy as well. Because what happens is uh, for other biomarkers of, of disease that we use are released into the circulation when the cardiac myocytes die and basically their contents are, are present in, in the bloodstream. So some of these biomarkers are not specific for uh, determined um, cardiomyopathies, but they can, that can, can identify a, a general uh, deterioration process. So that would be the next step to determine if it's specific for dilated cardiomyopathy or not, and then how robust it is. So basically, uh, we would we would expect that if it's a robust biomarker that it it's positive in in multiple uh, people affected by by the disease, uh, and that that would be the the immediate ne next step. Yeah, thank you um, for that question. And I had kind of a follow up from the previous thought or question regarding you know if other cell types um in you know people will have you know similar issues do you know if there's like any other comorbidities such as inflammation allergies or maybe cognitive function or you know tendency to early onset neurodegenerative diseases like is there like a high comorbidity of, you know, diseases where you would think uh, that having an efficient way of producing energy would be really important. Right. Yeah. You, this this is a good question. Um, there are multiple comorbidities of heart failure. Um, you know, like uh, cardio cardiometabolic syndrome is is an example. Diabetes and other metabolic disorders are associated with um, with heart failure. Um, in the context of pregnancy, for example, um, there, there is also a link with, with um, central nervous system development, uh, but it's more in the context of, for example, pediatric, in, in, in 
heart failure during pregnancy or maternal heart disease during pregnancy. Um, so yeah, there, there is a there is a clear link. In in our models, we haven't really studied this in in great detail, but we know of. Um, I know that several groups at, at this year in our in our institute they are very interested in understanding what what's the link with uh, heart failure during pregnancy and uh, preconditioning of, of offspring to neurocognitive dysfunction and and there is there is actually a, a relationship there so that that's something that we have begun addressing in in our model so that's something that we can we 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 are looking into specifically for uh, maybe this is not related to what you were asking but i'm thinking about um peripartum cardiomyopathy which is uh, uh, heart failure that, that that arises during or after shortly after pregnancy and this can have serious consequences to to both the the mother and also to the to the offspring in terms of neurocognitive function. So that that's something that we have begun looking into, but I, I don't have a more precise answer for you, unfortunately. Yeah, I was just thinking what would be like my logic of thinking was what would be the cheapest and easiest way for pre-screen, like for a general population screening. And then if something odd comes up, you can then maybe take a sample and you know do some sequencing or whatever will come up in different types of tissues or you know do further investigation so we had because we had the talk here last week where it was really interesting and children the one minute video a lot of things were going on versus a one minute video that was relatively boring and how time perception was and how it was also dependent on uh, the, um, the availability of children to to kind of reflect and talk about uh, all these events that were happening and the more they could talk about it basically the oh. longer they thought and i and we there already thought about all kinds of applications you know because of uh, seeing a lot of details in a short video is kind of probably a high energy cognitive function either could make the video shorter or longer to kind of strain your brain energy availability during that time and maybe there could be a way you know if people have in general if you see say there's also a neural neuronal um component maybe in children if if you know if you could just have a hint that if kids couldn't describe a lot in like one minute or maybe two minute videos uh, because they just don't have the energy available for perceiving a lot then you could then go ahead and and do more tests and check also the heart you know that was the idea oh, wow. yeah no that's so interesting yeah you got me thinking yeah that'd be very cool because you know something that i that i have struggled a lot is all this data that we are generating is telling us that the heart is not producing enough energy early on 
so before the heart becomes sick. I was thinking that we basically don't have a way of measuring cardiac metabolism in, in people, right? Like without an, an invasive or, you know, sample thing like that. But you are right. What if, what if you know, specific neurocognitive function reflective of energy availability could be an, an indicator of early metabolic deregulation that would prompt looking more closely at cardiac function? That would be fantastic. I will definitely look into that. Yeah, I, I don't know if it will work, but uh, what I can do is connect you with the, with the researcher that is doing this work. And he was really excited about all these ideas. The ideas you know we had was more about other type of diseases and then also high performing sports to pre-screen who would be a very good high performance uh, you know, a sports person in the future, but, you know, he, he was very excited about all those ideas and collaborating. So, um, yeah, maybe he could just show those videos to the kids in, in your clinic and maybe something comes up that would be that's, really interesting. That's a great idea. Yeah. Thank you for bringing that up. That's, that's, that, that's fascinating. Yeah. Yeah, I, I know we've been going on longer than we planned, so I wanted to make sure that I don't um, completely overstretch your page. <laughs> I'm, I'm having fun. Oh, wonderful. I'm glad. Um, let me check in the chat. Um, oh, yeah, Victoria has another question. This may be a silly question, but is blood type at all relevant I heard people with type A, B, or AB blood are more likely than type 0 to have a cardiac event. Wow, you guys are really testing me. Um, unfortunately, I know very little about this. I know blood type is associated with metabolic traits, that's for sure. But I don't know how it's associated with heart failure. Sorry about that. Yeah, I can remember, but vaguely, that last year there came a news article out um, claiming that uh, different types of blood types kind of correlate. It was just statistical, you know, big population data um, study that it, um, different blood types correlate to higher incidence in cardiovascular disease. But I, I would have to find it to to now cite with who it was. Oh, the American Heart Association data, I think, says Victoria. Okay, thank you. Very cool. And Susan, you joined the stage. Um, Paul, do you have uh, time for one more question? Of course, of course. Perfect. Uh, go ahead. Hi, um, I'm a filmmaker, and I say this every time I come up, so. I'm I'm just repeating it because you've never heard it. So my question is kind of from a different perspective. Um, I have two quick questions. One is, and then you might have mentioned this and I missed it. Is it different? And does it look different? Does it feel different? Does it have different components in men versus women, male or female? Um, and also, is this something that could be found in an autopsy? And the reason I ask that is because I did all these videos for organ donation 
and people were learning so much about their young, you know, and I hope this doesn't trigger anyone and I'm, I don't mean to upset anyone, but just that, you know, when someone is passed, sometimes when you do have autopsies or you get fully checked out because your door, organs are going to be donated, they were uncovering a lot of information about heart disease, even though the their loved one was very young. Mm, right. This is, yeah, this is very interesting. So, yeah, there is a very strong uh, sex-related component in, in heart failure. Um, men are more, uh, more susceptible in general to cardiovascular disease, but actually heart failure can be more severe in, in women. So this is something that we are looking into specifically in our model of, uh, in, in our KDM8 mutant, we found that females are affected as well. Uh, so first of all, all the studies that I, that I showed you in my presentation were done in, in males. We, we decided to start with males because they begin presenting the disease earlier than the females. But we, we, we are looking at the females right now. The, the disease looks very similar but the, in the the onset is a bit later but uh, almost by by a month but they also reach endpoint uh, with very severe dilated cardiomyopathy so we are now looking into what basically uh, delays the onset in in females which is very interesting and we see something similar in the model of pediatric um, dilated cardiomyopathy, they also develop the disease in a very similar way, but it begins later. So we are very intrigued based on all the similarities that we are discovering in both models. I think uh, we have an opportunity to find the, the driving factor in, in, in these models. Uh, what we also did in our study of the KDM8 mutant, uh, if you remember, we found that these heart, the human hearts affected by dilated cardiomyopathy, we found a subgroup in which the down regulation of metabolic regulators was, was stronger. And these were the hearts in which TBX15 was upregulated. In our sex uh, component in this analysis, we found that we didn't find a, a, a bias for sex-related bias. So basically, it the 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 severely affected hearts were were both represented in 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 females and males. So this is still a mystery, but it is such an important question based on on how heart failure affects differently uh, women and men. So this is what we have learned so far from our models. Uh, I wish I could I could tell you more, but we we have just started looking at this. Okay, thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for um, all the questions. And I just wanted to say that Victoria shared the news article in the chat about the blood types. And um, Elizabeth Green, she uh, shared a comment in the chat. Um, oh, I think it's just, oh, um, 
about the NAD um, application injections. Um, was was the the minute effective dose? Am I asking that right? Uh, it were performed at the end of the light period. Better than twelve hours later was the a minimum effective dose of of these NAD applications. Right. This is an important question. So basically, the 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 treatment scheme that we applied was previously uh, just recently published so we actually we were very, we were blind about how to administer it but we were fortunate that we had a student coming from a, a collaborators lab and they actually tested different concentrations of NAD they were not looking at the heart but they were looking at liver function and they came up with this treatment that basically maintained the 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 levels of NAD uh, uh, during day at night and night, and we basically used the same the same strategy that they used, and actually they they did more studies to show the bioavailability etc. But we didn't do more more testing on this, so this is something very important that that we haven't done yet. We are looking also at trying to use other analogs targeting the same pathway to see if we can um, improve or, or streamline these, this treatment, but we haven't done any more studies in, in that regard. Okay, thank you so much. I think uh, we've been, yeah, we... we gone over all the questions that I can see so far. So um, again, thank you so much for taking the time to come here and sharing this um, really interesting and, you know, work that will be so important for in the future for uh, people's health. So thank you for doing that and thank you for sharing it. And um, yeah, I hope maybe we'll speak again in the future. And I'll, yeah, if uh, I'll, I'll write a follow-up email in case you would like the introduction with the, with the one-minute video person. Of course. It's <laughs> my pleasure. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for the invitation. This was fun. I really appreciate the insightful questions. Thank you. Um, and, yeah, it was a really fun discussion. And everyone, uh, if you like discussions like this, follow this house. Uh, I know clubhouse changed from that we just have clubs to having houses and um, we have now two houses. <laughs> so it's kind of confusing. Just sign up uh, for both of them if you want to follow these type of rooms because we're not sure which, you know, uh, we for sure won't keep both. It was kind of a mixed transition. So yeah. Join us again in the future. And yeah, thank you, everyone. And thanks for asking interesting questions. It always makes the discussion uh, more interesting. And yeah, I hope to hear you all back again soon. And I'll close the room in three, two, one. Bye, everyone. Thank you.